Hello and welcome to episode two of the Open Fire podcast, a series of podcasts focusing on the fire safety industry and tackling the current issues facing responsible persons in the commercial and residential sectors. We'll be discussing the latest innovations from a variety of specialist fire safety manufacturers, looking at the lessons learnt from the terrible Grenfell tragedy from a year ago and taking the views of some of the fire industry's most prominent and recognised leaders. We're your hosts. My name's Don Ca- Dave Calvert. Tom Calvert. <laughs> Dave Calvert, independent fire consultant. And with me to discuss the latest fire news, I have fire expert, pundit, whiz kid and alpha geek, Tom Gilbert. Well, you got my name right, just your <laughs> name wrong. <laughs> I got a bit excited there, Tom. Um, so, Tom, what have we got lined up for this week's show? Well, hi, Dave. How are you? I'm marvellous. I'm always going to ask you how you are. I don't think you can skirt around it. You're looking well. Thanks. I've uh, had a <laughs> shave, um, but not all of it. Anyway, so um, we've got a very exciting episode lined up this week. Okay. Obviously, depending on what industry you're working in. There's somebody the else. Industry, I sense another not. presence in the studio today. There is definitely someone sitting in the chair that wasn't there last week, and that is our good friend Jim Creek. Um, he is the uh, managing director of J-Light and the editor of the Means of Escape magazine. He's going to talk to us a little bit later in the show. Um, and we're going to talk to him about signs and you know some other interesting bits and pieces, get him involved in the conversations that we're going to have today. Um, we're also going to ask him about his thoughts on the uh, Great Fire of London, uh, particularly as a witness of that fire. Very the last, relevant the to last today. living witness of that fire. Um, in 1666. So we're going to be asking Jim about what happened there. Um, but to be fair, before we get there, Dave, um, I'd imagine you were hoping I'd forget, but there was a bit of a cliffhanger last week, wasn't there? I wasn't hoping you'd forget. I'm very excited you've asked, actually. That means that the uh, the homework that we set you to uh, get engaged with the goat sector, and to be honest, I was surprised there was one, but you did get involved with the goat sector. You might have written them a little letter um, I did. So to bring our listeners up to date, if they if they missed last week's podcast... But if you did miss it, go and listen to it, because it was a corker. Available on our website. Absolutely. At theopenfirepodcast.com. Um, so to remind our listeners, uh, we, we emailed um, a variety of goat experts, the British Goat Society, the Goats Veterinary Society, the Cleveland Dairy Goat Society, the Cornwall Goat Keepers Association, the Essex and Suffolk Goat Club, the Ayrshire Goat Club, and the Pygmy Goat Club. And we were interested if they could answer some of our questions about using goats as firefighters. And we emailed them and asked them to answer um, seven questions. Would goats like to be deployed in the moorlands of West Yorkshire? Would they like the sort of grass and stuff they have there? How strong are goats? Could goats be fitted with small backpacks that contain fire extinguishers? Can we paint their horns red? Could you wrap a goat in a fire blanket to keep it fire retardant? So... I'm pleased to tell you we got a response. Did we? We did. We only got one response. However, it came from Elizabeth Abbott. I bet it was a really long response, wasn't it? Um, I, I wouldn't get too excited. Curb your enthusiasm for a moment. So we got a response from Elizabeth Abbott at the Essex and Suffolk Goat Club. Thanks, Elizabeth. It was four words. <laughs> <laughs> Were any of them rude? No, no, she was oh. very polite in her response. Um, it, it reads as follows, and I quote, Sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's answered some questions for us. She didn't elaborate why she couldn't help me. 
However, I feel I've, I've, I've completed my homework. I got a response. I'm assuming the other people are conducting tests. Well, we'll follow this through the series. If some of them are a bit slow to email because they've been out milking the goats or whatever you do with goats. I worry that the Fire Brigade's union might get hold of this because if we could genuinely replace people with goats firefighting, you know there's going to be... Uh... Do you think that's why Elizabeth couldn't help us? I think she was worried about getting firemen made redundant right okay i'm worried about it dave but you know i'm worried now i think i've upset a lot of firemen well don't, or goats. don't do that okay moving on so tom would you like to introduce our guest for this week absolutely so this is a, a segment that we're going to run every episode and it's called soapbox of the week we, we, we need some theme music for that do we, we do some sort of jingle maybe okay. we can Maybe that could be your homework. Maybe we can get Towles, our producer, to edit in a little bit of background music. As we... Let's try that again. Absolutely. And <laughs> Soapbox of the Week. Soapbox of the Week. The Week. The Week. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Soapbox of the Week is where we bring a guest in um, and they get to uh, talk about the subject that makes their blood boil. And this week's guest is uh, none other than the managing director of J-Light and the editor of the Means of Escape magazine. Um He's chairman of the British Standards Technical Committee for the application of escape route signs and the safety sign and fire safety notices committee. <gasps> That's a long one, isn't it? He is a steering committee member of the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network, which is where I met him many moons ago. Um, he's a businessman, entrepreneur, wine connoisseur, and I'm happy to admit a very good friend of the show and, dare I say, a mentor of mine, Jim Creek. Oh, Hello, Jim. Thank, thank you very much for that uh, huge introduction. And, Jim, uh, <laughs> your email signature must just go on for a sheet of A4. I, I try not to mention half of the stuff that Tom's <laughs> just mentioned. And uh, I certainly can't really follow the goats because, uh, uh, from my perspective, I don't really know where the tone of this <laughs> presentation that you'd like me to do today is, is going. Don't be scared, Jim. Don't be scared. We're, <laughs> we're going to hold your hand through this. I, I think this is going to be a bit of a theme when we get to the soapbox. I think there's going to be an element of intrepidation from our guests thinking that we're going to just destroy their soapbox issue. But I don't think that's, that's not intention. what this is about, is no. it, Dave? No, it's not. Um, okay. Well, so, do you want to know how I got started? In yeah, the go business? on then, Jim. You kick okay. off. Tell us well, how you got started in before this. Before uh... we do do that, Jim, I want to ask you a question because, as a market-leading photoluminescent signage manufacturer, do you like what I did there? Yeah. Well, if I turned the lights out now, would you glow in the dark? Uh, not me. <laughs> no, I wouldn't glow in the dark. Would any because... part of you glow in the dark, Jim? <laughs> because I'll do a bit of a commercial. Nothing about photoluminescence is radioactive. Fantastic. It's totally non-toxic. So could you safely lick the signage if you wanted you to? You certainly Jim? could lick could the signage. I'm going well, I think I might test that as my homework this week. <laughs> Just see what happens. <laughs> Um, for the record, we switched the lights off earlier and Jim didn't glow in the dark. We just wanted to confirm that. So, so Jim, tell us, wh wh why, are you in the, why are you in the fire signage industry? How did, how did that happen? Well, two things, really. Obviously, somebody did show me something that glowed in the dark and I was terribly interested. Something, a piece of material that could effectively be energised by the ordinary light, daylight, or a light bulb. And then, in the absence of light, give off such a fantastic light source totally energy free and um i couldn't actually uh believe uh what i saw i came up with the same things am i going to be, be um, radioactive is it harmful is it poisonous what's the drawback what's 
why haven't people seen or heard of this stuff before? This is in 1985. Um, and um, so it seemed to me, uh, from an application point of view, uh, in order to save energy and save electricity, which is what it was developed for in um, Switzerland, you could use this for escape route illumination. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, 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 the added benefits of the fact that it didn't need any maintenance was going to be a huge plus for the So let's just mode. set the scene there. So you said 1985, Jim. Um, so we're talking about Live Aid. Um, Audi Quattros. Do they know it's Christmas? Bob Geldof, give us your money and yeah. all that stuff. Three, two, but, one. More, but more than that, we're talking... Piper so, Alpha disaster. Piper Alpha disaster. We're talking disaster. about a King's Cross fire. So, so uh, we're talking about Bradford football ground fire. In Lots that era, going on. In that era, Jim, just to um, put it in perspective for um, some of our perhaps younger listeners. So, what what was the signage like in those days? Was it uniform? Uh, presumably, there was no photoluminescent signage. What was the standard of signage for means of escape? Well, that routes. That's a really interesting. Um, part of the whole business because back in 1985 all fire safety signs were text text only and um, believe it or not the eu had made a directive to come out and make pictograms or graphical symbols for life safety application and um, the law demanded that by 1992 that the text only signs be changed for graphical symbols well um there is quite a very serious side to escape route marking and escape route signs and when i looked at the five different graphical symbol that the eu or brussels had chosen uh, for um, escape i just didn't understand them and i thought well why are we going to play pictionary with people's lives and that's the serious side to what really got me hooked in the business. I was very lucky to spend some time with the late Dr. Jonathan Syme, who's doing research in the Isle of Man um, uh, fire uh, uh, on exit choice behavior. And um, uh, the people do not panic in fire. I was really, really surprised. You're the one for statistics, Dave. 10% of people that were interviewed in the Isle of Man fire actually went closer to the event, to closer to the fire, to have a look before they decided to escape or move. Blimey. This really frightened me. Today, I fear that that's going to be with the excitement to take a photograph or a video of it on mobile phones. Or a selfie. Or a selfie um, with fires. In fact, there's a YouTube video on of a, a fire in a nightclub in um, Basildon in Essex in my hometown of where uh, kids are instead of evacuating the nightclub have decided to stay there and take uh, videos so as you can see it's quite an emotive subject with me absolutely so i got involved with the british standard and the british standard at the time um, had a perfectly perfectly understood um, graphical symbol for escape route signs that was totally ignored by the UK government and Brussels. Because signage is really misunderstood, isn't it? And like a good example would be that if you took a load of five people and put them in a room and asked them a very simple question about escape route signs, 
they'd all come up with a different answer. And the sort of question that I would ask would be that in a building that's got more than one escape route, which one should we be signing? Because the question leads to, do you sign the shortest route? Do you sign the longest route? Do you sign the route that people wouldn't normally use? Or do you just sign all of them? And I think in the buildings that I've been around, and I'm sure Dave would echo it and and, and yourself, Jim, but it, we just get a mix match of, of of signage application. So, I mean, what, what's what's the true answer according to the well, standards? Well, but this is this is the nerdy part about the work that we've done in both British standards and international standards. Is the first and foremost is to actually really understand or building managers and the responsible person. We've started off uh, talking about the responsible person or the duty holder is to really develop the strategy that's suitable for the type of building that it is. And BS 5499 Part 4, the application standard, has since 1990 insisted that a strategy be developed before you start to plan where to put escape route signs. And that isn't really what happens, is it? But it, but it, but it also suggests in the absence of that plan, we would recommend that only the shortest route from any point within a building would be given priority. Why? Because it's a tried and tested fire engineering principle that the shortest route is normally the quickest route. Yeah. But not only that, is if you go to the shortest route and you find that that route is untenable, then you've bought yourself time to turn, return to the place that you came from and find an alternative. Absolutely. Now, in terms of photoluminescent signage, um, bearing in mind that it was only something we really sort of started to develop in the 80s, um, why is photoluminescence better than a sign that isn't photoluminescent or indeed a back illuminated sign or an externally illuminated sign? What, what are the pros of photoluminescent signage? Well, the, the obvious big pro for photoluminescence, it, it, is, it is very energy efficient. It is practically maintenance free um, because a non-abrasive wipe is all the product actually needs. And not only that... <laughs> Unfortunately, the one reason why I'm not talking to you from NERCA is that it doesn't have a half life or a shelf life. Once it's there, it's there forever, and its effectiveness is um, is there for, for years. But the most important thing about all signs is all signs require illumination. Yeah. So you've got different methods of illuminating fire safety signs. Obviously, I believe in photoluminescent signs because they can be sighted at the most appropriate place, not necessarily where there's a direct electrical connection. Yeah. Uh, and that you can effectively apply a good safety way guidance principle and um, a strategy to um, uh, sign uh, sighting. Again, lots of people, lots of people are not appreciative of the fact that signing has to be at the same height throughout the escape route. Yeah. There's two heights that people should remember, 1.7 metres on walls and two metres if suspended or above doors. Mm -hmm. Why? Because we want them to be within the zone of influence so that you can see them intuitively and immediately. But more than anything else, 
we want them at the lowest place so they're not going to be obscured by smoke. Absolutely. So, and uh, and the, obviously the nice thing about photoluminescent signs is that if the ceiling luminaires or the emergency lighting is obscured by smoke, then the photoluminescence is still going to illuminate that important safety message. Is all photoluminescence the same, Jim? No, like like every life safety product, it doesn't matter uh, whether it's a life raft or a lifeboat or a hose reel or a fire extinguisher. There's standards that they need to actually be manufactured to. And of course, there is should be from a reputable supplier a certificate of conformity for luminance performance. So they just perform differently in terms of that how means, much light they give off. That means not only uh, how much light they need to be energized or yep. activated, uh, the British standard asks for a class C to allow them to be energized or excited for as low as 50 lux, mm -hmm. even though the British standard recommends that an externally illuminated sign should be illuminated for 100 lux. Dave, do you know what a lux is? Stato uh, in the corner. Unit of light measurement man, uh, measured in ca uh, candles, one candle. Jim is going to give you the answer Give us to this. the technical answer, no, Jim. No, it's, it's the amount of, from one candle, how much light forms onto uh, a uh, given object. That's pretty much what I said, isn't it? From a <laughs> is it a metre, isn't it? Yes. One pretty candle much power from one metre. And the light output from photoluminescence is measured in millicandelas. There you go. That's, That's a nice word. That's a nice oldie-worldie word, isn't it? A millicandela. Do you think that fire safety signage is seen as a poorer brother to other fire precautions? Well, people think it, um, unfortunately, my opinion is over 30 years that people think it's simple and it isn't. Yeah. Uh, you can walk in any retail environment and you can see somebody indicating you that the fire exit is in the building because yeah. someone's used a double-sided sign at the front door. Yeah. And, and we look at it and we say, are we stupid or are they stupid? Yeah, indeed. Oh, no, we won't say anything because there might be a higher authority. Um, and um, uh, and uh, effectively, anybody that knows me, knows i'm on the soapbox but i think and that's, that's why you're here that's on enough soapbox of that's the week, enough Jim. i've done the soapbox bit and uh have i, I could work in the soapbox bit for you dave okay thanks jim that's fantastic are you all right to hang around on the show and uh, engage with us for the rest of the episode yeah i'll try and be a bit more lighter uh, in the in the clothes was that a bit. photoluminescent pun <laughs> oh no don't get me started again so <laughs> dave in terms of the uh, we like to do a little bit of news don't we dave what um what's been happening in the world of fire safety okay week? latest fire safety update uh tom 5th of september 1666. Oh, it's great, a modern one. Great fire of London swept through the medieval city, destroying more than 13,000 houses, Jim, as well as 87 churches and St. Paul's Cathedral. Blimey. I was there. I was buying pies. You were there, Jim. Oh, yeah. Didn't you have a small uh, bakery? <laughs> I was buying a pie. <laughs> I, who, ate all the, pie? who ate all the pies? So I thought, seeing as we've got Jim here as an expert eyewitness... <laughs> The last um, surviving eyewitness. We would of the try and go through some of the myths and legends from the Great Fire of London and um, see if we can dispel some of them. Because so these I'll... podcasts don't have to be stuffy, do they, Dave? No, in fact, they shouldn't be stuffy. They shouldn't. That's exactly what we're trying to get away from. So I've got some questions for you, Tom. Oh, dear. And Jim. Um, so let's go on some. Let's start off with some of the popular uh, misconceptions. So can you tell me, Tom? Yeah. Fire guru that you are. Right. Where did the Great Fire of London start? Um, I'm going to go with Pudding Lane. 
Jim, any advance on Pudding Lane? I, I would have said put it. It's the pie shop. I told you it was the pie shop. You see, this is where I is come into my own legends? with some statistics. So Tom Farriner's Bakehouse was not located on Pudding Lane. Health tax records from the date created just before the fireplace far- before the fire placed Farriner's Bakehouse on Fish Yard, which is a small enclave off of Pudding Lane. Well, there you go. So there we go. That's from the History Extra site. There's a fantastic tapas bar right on the site now. I, I forgot the name. <laughs> Damn right, Jim. Yeah. We're going there afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful Rioja. <laughs> Wonderful. Told you it was a wine buff. So uh, who predicted the Great Fire of London? Uh, was it the Open Fire podcast? Uh, we would have done if we'd been around. Um, who predicted it? Who predicted the Great Fire the of London? The mayor. No, the mayor wasn't very um, very helpful with the fire. He actually he? went back to bed, didn't he? You say this like I was there. Yeah, he, it was... Did uh, he? Did I come back to bed, mayor? He, he, he he, his actual words were, he looked out of the mayor's window, saw the fire, and said words to the effect of, I could piss that out, and then went back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> was he it, actually said that? Was it the British Woodworking Federation? You have a look on the History X website. It's brilliant for stuff like that. They Fantastic. had a vested interest in rebuilding it because it was all wood. Absolutely. So, so in 1651... A worshipful company, it would have been called. I'm sure it would be yeah. a, some si- worshipful company. All <laughs> <laughs> right, to have a word? <laughs> in 1651, an astrologer named William Lilly created a pamphlet entitled Monarchy or No Monarchy, that contained an illustrative predictions of the future state of England. The images depicted not only a city blazing with fire, but scenes of naval warfare, infestations of rodents, mass death and starvation, all of which happened in that year. Unsurprisingly, Lily was called in for questioning following the fire <laughs> in 1666. <laughs> So he predicted it. He predicted it. And then probably got burnt for heresy. He actually predicted in 1651, uh, 15 years before the fire. Wow. Mm. I think he got away with it because he hadn't been breeding rats. Maybe. You may be right. You may be right. So it destroyed 436 acres of London. How big's an acre, Dave? (laughs) Long-term listeners will know that last week we learnt what an acre is. So Tom... Can yes. you describe to me what an acre is? Uh, an acre is the area of land that can be ploughed by one man and an ox in one, one day. Ox. Or 60% of a soccer pitch, 75% of an American football field, or 16 tennis courts in a 4x4 four four formation. There we go. But that's about the same number as uh, was the was the um, Moore's Fire, 4,000-odd, wasn't it? Same, same dimension. Is there some... Uh, no, uh, 4,400 uh, and something was the fire on the Moors. 436 acres was what was destroyed oh, in the a fire tenth. of London. Only a tenth of the So Moore the Moors fires were seven times bigger than the fire of London. Well, the fire of London was a relatively small area. So in modern day terms, it was within the city walls. So, so it, it pretty much mild. started where um, the monument is, yep. um, which is obviously a monument to the fire. And it's it was from there to um, in the west side, it went as far as Fleet Street. Yep. And going northwards, it went to pretty much where the city wall is now. Blimey. So does that mean if we built a wall round the moors, we could oh, stop we the fire? Oh, Maybe we're going idea. back to like I like I like what you've done, Jim. It's nice to know you were listening goats. last yeah. week. You were obviously the, the only listener. <laughs> um, so did anything, um, and this is an open question, did anything good come out of the Great Fire of London? Jim, you got any ideas? 
Well, I think the no. creation of that tapas bar was obviously a <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would have been a bakery. Much now, later, much later. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there were, I, I think there were lots of good things that happened. Probably building regulations. Yeah, building regs probably started then, did it? Practical planning. Yep. Christopher Wren's original elaborate plan to rebuild London was rebuffed, but instead a quicker approach of rebuilding London was adopted, led by Chris and Robert Hooke, who's a famous surveyor. Well, I never did. They build out of wood, or did they ban wood? Did they ban thatch? They banned thatch, and ah. that, that ban stands today. They actually had to get a special uh, dispensation to build the new uh, Shakespeare Globe, ah. so that it looked like the original. Although, actually, the Shakespeare's Globe wasn't around in sixteen sixty. The original right. Shakespeare, it, it was. I think it was demolished in about sixteen fifteen or something like that. Yeah, but he, but he had a twin brothers, didn't he? Left and right. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask a question. Now, I don't know whether I'm imagining this, but don't they, didn't they have to keep explosives for the purposes of fire breaks? Um, no, so, so what it was, um, that they, there was a lot of explosives in London because we were in the, uh, a war with the Dutch at the time. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the French were very happy because they thought we lost all of our explosives during the Great Fire of London, which wasn't actually true. Mm. However, to cause fire breaks... They did actually use gunpowder to blow up some of the houses to yeah. essentially stop the spread from one building to another. Um, so yeah, you're right. They they were using gunpowder to stop to, to ultimately contain the fire. Yeah, but there, I suppose there was one ultimate positive of the Great Fire of London, wasn't there? Was there? Yeah. You're going to tell us what it is. Oh well, it did, of course, end the outbreak of the bubonic plague, which prior to that had killed sixty five thousand people. Absolutely. So I would say that is probably a positive to come out of the fire. Yeah. They, on that, I mean, that's like almost a cliffhanger in itself. Yeah. Well, well, the, the other, the other, um, the other brilliant uh, fact that came out of the Great Fire of London, as you you'll remember, Jim, um, was <laughs> Samuel Pepys uh, burying his uh, Parmesan cheese to protect it from the fire. Where did he per... bury it? Um, I think there's a plaque somewhere in London that tells us uh, where it was buried. Yeah, cheese. I'm sure it did. In, in Samuel Pepys' diary, he buried. It does beg the question why he why he chose his cheese of all things to bury. I'm assuming as Parmesan of cheese, it would have been very expensive then. Well, it was, but I think he also buried his wines and various jewellery and stuff like that. But his cheese was up there with his most prized possessions. Jim, you weren't Samuel Pepys, were you? I've uh, never liked to. Uh, Parmesan oh, uh, cheese, you? no. But you uh, would have buried your wine uh, or drunk it quick. I think that would have been bad for the eat anyway, so. Fantastic. Well, I think that you probably need some homework, Dave. Okay, what's this week's uh, uh, project? Well, I think we need to keep it relevant. And now I'm, I'm thinking it needs to be cheese-related. Okay, okay, I like um, it. And I don't know. I'm going to go one of two ways. We'll let the guests decide. Right. I think I either need to know which cheese could survive for the longest if buried or which like cheese it. melts at the highest temperature and therefore is the most fire-retardant cheese. Huh. I like the theme of the fire-retardant cheese. I can see an experiment happening To here. be clear, this isn't about you, Dave. This is up to <laughs> our soapbox of the week guest, Jim, okay. to decide. I don't want to put any pressure on you, Jim, but um, I'm well up for a Bunsen burner and a bit yeah. of cheese. Heat-resistant. It's got to be heat-resistant cheese. Okay, so because in, in true Open Fire podcast style, we've taken something that's historically important, the bearing of a Parmesan cheese and the it Great is. Five of London, and we've turned it into a jovial... To a challenge. Okay. challenge. There Rack we go. Challenge. So what I want you to do is, Dave, I want you to go out and find out which cheese melts at the highest temperature 
and is therefore going to be crowned the most fire retardant cheese and reporting next week award. I and then see, I can see me writing to the goat industry again. This one. Once we've done this, Dave, we're going to present an open fire podcast certificate to the manufacturer of said cheese with the most fire retardant cheese award. I'm on it. Okay. I'm on it. As soon as we finish this week's show, I'll be cracking on with that. Jim, I wonder if you would be willing to um, create a link on your website to the winner of that. Um, no uh, problems. I'll give any fantastic. cheese manufacturer a bit of air. So, no so there you go. If you're a cheese manufacturer and you think your cheese can cut it, you'll get a free plug in the Means of Escape magazine, which goes to how many people, Jim? It's uh, got 6,000 plus 6,000 readers. You can't say fairer than that, Super. can you? That's Super. a cheese man's dream. Lovely stuff. Or cheese lady. Okay, I think that just about wraps us up for this week, Tom. Absolutely, it does. Um, who's going to be on next week's show? Well, it's a surprise. <laughs> it is a surprise. If you would like to come and join us on any episode of um, the Open Fire podcast, um, you can check us out on our website, theopenfirepodcast.com, and you can write to myself and Tom at Dave and Tom, all one word, Dave and Tom at openfirepodcast.com. If you have any comments, uh, whether they're cheese related, fire related, signage related, or anything else, um, please do drop us a line. Or, and if you'd like to come and appear as our, one of our guests on our shows, let us know what your soapbox would be, and uh, we'll get you in the studio. Put you onto the limelight. Indeed. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim, for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. And it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Goodbye.